Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. I'll be reading Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. And holy, glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work your intended purposes of this passage into our hearts and into our lives by the Holy Spirit softening our hearts. I pray. Amen. Last week, we spent all of our time just focusing on the two great commands, the answer that the the lawyer gave, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And what we saw last week is that there's a sense in which these two great commandments, the law of God, are a mirror (laughs) that reflects back onto us how sinful we are. That nobody can nor has ever kept these two commandments perfectly or fully, except one person, Jesus And we saw, therefore, that Jesus' 
substitutionary, sacrificial death and resurrection is what put away our guilt before this law. And that Jesus' perfect obedience to the law of God, summarized with love your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, He lived it sinlessly. And that His life, that perfect righteousness, if you're a believer has been imputed to you, to your account. That's how God now will forever see you. Okay. On the other side, we also saw last week, it's not all that Jesus did on the cross. He's done that. He also, though, purchased our new life. He purchased our, oh, ever so slow sanctification. He, he, he purchased, in other words, the reality of the genuineness, though never perfect, of these two commandments being realized in every genuine believer's life. In other words, our love for people reveals the authenticity of our faith in Jesus. Our, our love for people reveals in differing measures at differing times the health of our personal walk with the Trinitarian God. How healthy or unhealthy it is. The, the, these two commands, the vertical and the horizontal, love God and love your neighbor, they are the summary of the whole law of Moses. Now, most people, when we think of the law, we think at the core of it, right, even though there's 700 and something commandments in the law, but we think of the Ten Commandments. These two commandments are a summary of them. If you take the first four commandments of the Decalogue, they're vertical, they're Godward. You can summarize them with what we call the Shema. Central in the first century Judaism and central today to Jews and should be to Christians. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Because the text begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay, Central. That's the first four commandments. The, the next six could be summarized with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, you don't steal from them. You don't bear false testimony in court against them. You don't commit adultery with his wife. Summarized, love your neighbor. And, and that's the answer the lawyer gives here. It's the answer that Jesus gives when he's asked. <laughs> the spiritual logic that we saw last week is that we must first, not second, and there is a priority, first love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to that extent, we have the resources to do the second commandment, to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. And that's why we saw last week through the first epistle of John 
how the Apostle John just hammers us Christians again and again, saying we can discern whether we have genuine saving faith in Jesus by how we love other people. Now, let's go back to the text. Start again with verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, first, this guy, he's called a lawyer. That's not a lawyer in our sense where we have a state court and county courts, etc. And, and, and you know the law and you know precedent and you know how to argue for criminal cases. No, it means he's a professional scholar in the law of Moses, in, in, in biblical law. He's a, they didn't have them then, but he's a doctor of philosophy in the law of Moses. He's an elite religious academic type. This lawyer looks really good in his own eyes. He considers himself better, forget about Gentiles, than most of his fellow Jews as a religious elite. This guy is sure he knows the truth. So, here, here's the text now. Notice Luke says, the lawyer stood up. <laughs> we're, supposed to see, we're supposed to see something there. He stood up in order to put Jesus to the test. So here's the picture. Jesus is teaching and a bunch of people, lawyers there. Jesus is seated. The people are seated. And then this guy, I don't know how close he is to Jesus, but Luke wants to tell us he stood purposely. There's a confrontational attitude going on here with his standing. And Luke gives us his motives. It just clarifies that this is the point. Luke lets us know this guy has an agenda. It's not a genuine question. Wow, I mean, I'm a Ph.D. in theology and I don't know the answer. Do you? Oh, Jesus, you little country bumpkin preacher, maybe you do. No, he's trying to trick him, trying to get him to slip up with his answer. And so Jesus just puts the question back on the lawyer. What's the law say? Boy, that's a good answer. What's the Bible say? How do you read it? He sends the guy to the place that gives the answer for eternal life. The Bible, the law of Moses. The guy feels stuck. Jesus nailed him publicly. Everyone's listening to this PhD. So he's got to come up with, he's got, what's he going to do? So he does answer with what we just saw, the Shema, and with Leviticus 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, You got it. See it? You have answered correctly. Do it. And you will live. Now the lawyer feels really foolish. Everyone knew he stood up to challenge Jesus. Jesus did not use many words. What's the Bible say? You said it. Do it. Oh man, to be there. This guy is perturbed. Jesus had last word at this point. It's his turn. He feels foolish. He wants to save face. We know this. I don't have to read it into the text because Luke gives us his motive again for the next thing that comes out of his mouth. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, the Ph.D., Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So his motive here is to vindicate himself. He's defensive. Like many Jews in the first century, and Pharisees, scholars like this guy, Neighbor was restricted to a particular kind of a person. An upright, observant, law-keeping Jew. Something about the way Jesus said this to the guy. That's right. Do it. Something about the way he said it made this guy feel the breadth, the extension of love your neighbor that Jesus seemed to be implying, and he feels defensive about that. I mean, certainly Jesus cannot mean every human being whom God puts into our path that has a need. Clearly, I can get Jesus to agree with me now. Everyone's listening publicly. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's define neighbor here. Obviously. Agree with me, Jesus? Of course. Us. Tiny segment of serious religious Jewish people. You can't mean, Jesus, we are accountable to love everybody who comes across our path. I mean, you've got to draw the line somewhere. And so Jesus tells a parable. And his parable is purposeful. He just nails this guy by exposing him precisely by using other Jewish religious elites in the parable, the priest and the Levite, who fell in their keeping the law of Moses to love their neighbor as they love themselves. 
the sinful inclination of all of us. Like this guy. Is to have a category of. These are non-neighbors. <laughs> Not accountable to love them. What we see here is that Jesus refuses to turn peoples, persons, groups into subhuman categories who are unworthy of being loved by God's people. Whether it's based on race, religion, Religious practice, economic class, education, or whatever. This parable that we're going to see now is a constant warning to every one of us Christians to not justify our lack of loving other people by narrowing the category for those who have whom we are responsible. Start with verse 30. So Jesus responds to him this way. To the question, Who is my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, so Jesus, we have this guy who's been mugged, and he's probably unconscious. His mouth is probably blood everywhere. He's probably missing teeth now, and he's lying on the side of the road, left for dead. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho where lots of priests lived in the Jericho area so which their time to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. It's about an 18 mile journey really from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Windy. A lot of caves. Good place to get mugged. And so here's Jesus telling the story and then He goes on. Now by chance Good, thank goodness. Who pure luck here for this guy? A priest was going down the road. And so Jesus gets us to feel, thank goodness someone's going to save this guy. So, what does he pick? A professional clergyman. A priest. By chance he shows up. And then simply Jesus goes on. And when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He left him there. And so likewise, a Levite, okay, a Levite, not as high up as a priest, but pretty high up as a professional religious person who works in the temples in charge of the Levites are in charge of the, the liturgy. They're essentially servants or helpers, assistants of the priesthood 
in the ministry within the sacrificial system and in the temple. A Levite also comes up, and when he came to the place, and in the way that the Greek is in Luke says, he really came close and saw the man, he passed by on the other side, leaving him there. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, the lawyer and all the other Jews with him, the, the, the crowd that is, that is obviously there, you know, they feel what's going on so far. The religious elite in Jesus' story are not looking so good. And the lawyer's getting it. I mean, he's one of the religious elite. He's not a priest, he's not a Levite, but he's a scholar. He's a lawyer. And the punch is, is there. And Jesus has made it clear. So far there's been two men, two tries, and two fails on loving this particular man. And everyone is expecting, in a good Semitic way, the third act of the play at this point. Okay, two fails. What's the third act? Who is this hero that's going to come and save this man? But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where this man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Smack! That's what they felt. This was stunning in the context Jesus was telling this parable to fellow Jews. The hero of the story. The person who kept the Shema. Hero Israel. Love the Lord your God. Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. He kept the law of Moses. Who's the hero? But the hated enemy of the Jews. The despised, despicable half-breed. Racially impure worshiping in the wrong way, in the wrong place, Mount Gerizim. Jesus makes this guy in this story the hero. The, the hatred between the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews as the Jews hated the Samaritans, has been going on for centuries at this point. We've seen this in previous text in Luke. And so, as Jesus is telling the story... Act 3, the Jews and the lawyer, they're probably expecting, okay, here comes the hero. It's going to be a Jewish lay person. That's okay because most of the Jews who are an elite like a good story that kind of slams the clergy. But Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was and he had compassion. God got, got to feel it. Let me just retell the story for a second in a different setting. It's Berlin, Germany, 1939. Jesus shows up. He's got a crowd of blonde-haired Nazi Germans. And he tells them how one of their number was mugged on the road 
And then a Nazi party leader walks down the road, sees the bloody unconscious man, looks at him and passes on. And then a bureaucrat working in Hitler's Jewish affairs department comes down the road, sees the man and walks on. And then Jesus says, and then a Jew came down the road, saw the man, saw the Nazi, blonde-haired German man, and had compassion on him. This is the impact of what they're feeling. And Jesus goes on to describe what compassion led to. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the, Jesus tells a story. Here's a Samaritan. He has compassion. The Greek word is splankna. means this is the word for entrails, guts. So Jesus is describing first something about this man and what it is to love another is to feel heart-wrenching compassion. And that leads him to rip up whatever part of his clothes, his tunic, his head covering, because he, he's got to get the cloth somewhere. So he takes his own stuff and he starts to bandage him up. He takes his own wine and pours it on the wounds for disinfectant takes his own oil and he pours it on the wounds to soothe. He takes the man. I think this is the assumption. And I'll get to why Jesus doesn't say for in a minute. But he, the assumption is, in the story, in where Jesus tells it, he's a Jewish man. He takes the man and he puts him on his own donkey. And he walks until he finds an inn. And he pays the money. And he goes to the room. And he doesn't dump the man there. Stays with him all through the night. Nursing him. Now he's got to get on his way. And so he goes to the innkeeper. And he gives to the innkeeper 24 days of rent for the room. And to feed the man for those 24 days. And he says to the innkeeper, and in the Greek it's, in, it's there, it's emphatic. He's, he says, if you spend more, I, I, ego, me. In Greek, when you do that, you're saying, the point is, I will repay you. Don't you dare ask this man if you go over the budget. I'll come back and pay his bill. 
So, the Samaritan, he spent time, he spent money, he spent a great deal of personal energy to nurse and help take care of the needs of this guy. Or, as we saw in this text, and we looked at more closely last week, love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you burn your hand, (laughs) ice, help me. And you do all you can. And Jesus gives a picture. It's exactly what this guy did. Your wounds, you pour, disinfect, wrap, nurse, bed, food come to your room. Get it. Let's turn the table for a second. The Samaritan. <laughs> the point of the story is Jews are bad and Samaritans are good. That's not the point. The point is the Samaritan had overcome his racial and his religious prejudice in order to truly love what he was taught in his culture to hate this Jewish man. There's a story. Here's the irony of it all. And Jesus knows it. This lawyer, every morning he recited the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Shema Israel Adonai. You ever hear that song? That's Shema. Hear O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. This lawyer, while he stood up to ask Jesus the question, had a phylactery on his head. A little box. A little tiny writing with those words of Deuteronomy 6 written in it. He, he had this physical appearance of, I'm one of God's. I am a person who loves God. And we evangelicals have our own kinds of phylacteries, bumper stickers, t-shirts, I go to this church, I go to that church, we wear that, and that's not necessarily wrong. But the biblical outward evidence is not the box on your forehead. Or the bumper sticker. The biblical outward evidence of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's go back and reread it now. Let's not miss the really strange thing that happened in this dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer. Jesus did not answer the question. 
Who is my neighbor? I think one of the reasons he... I just, that's why I'm going to use the word think. It's saving. But I think one of the reasons Jesus hated the question. The, the answer to Jesus and to the Scripture is so obvious. You're asking me which which persons who were created in the image of God you, you, you could just go back to Genesis now what does the law say which persons who were created in the imago Dei the image of God are you not responsible to love that's the question to Jesus he hated the question and so he changed the question. He changed the question from what kinds of people out there are worthy of my love? In other words, love your neighbor? Okay, got it. Let's narrow it down. Of all the people, who are those that are my Neighbor. There's this question. He changed it from who's my neighbor. Here's the thing that we're supposed to hear and ask. What kind of a person am I? He changed it from what kind of people deserve my love. To how can I become the kind of person who has compassion on the other, regardless of status? Regardless of economic class, what religion they belong to, what color their skin is. The story says, in other words, how can I become a person that, that would be or turn a Samaritan to become a person who would love a Jew that way? That's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He knew the insincerity of the question that was asked. He knew the PhD was playing games. And Jesus won't play games. Jesus caught him as we saw. And then the question comes, and Luke says, get it clear, the man is defensive. He's trying to justify himself, and that's why he asked the stupid question. Who is my neighbor? He felt trapped. So Jesus hears. Who qualifies Jesus? Come on, you can't mean everybody. You can't mean every race. You certainly can't mean Gentiles or Samaritans who, who have everything screwed up. They're like a cult, a religious cult to the Jews. But Jesus despised the segmenting of humanity into worthy groups to receive your love and unworthy groups 
to receive your love. See, if Jesus had intended to answer the question, Who is my neighbor? I think He would have used the Samaritan as the guy who got mugged on the side of the road. Because He's talking to Jews. And then He would have had finally maybe some Jewish layperson be the hero and say, See that, my fellow Jews? Even Samaritans are your neighbor. But that's not the way He told the parable. In verse 33 we find the key phrase. He had compassion. Okay, you've got to see it again. Jesus, who's my neighbor? Here's his point. He's not answering that question. He's making his point now. Here's the point of the parable. This man had compassion. The focus shifted from the question, who is my neighbor? Who is the object that I am to love? To the subject. Who is the person who loves? Did you notice in the parable, Jesus identified the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. He never identified the object of love. His point is, in the parable, don't be like the first two men. His point, then and forever, is to become the type of person who has compassion and thus does what the third man did. That's his point. So, now let's finish the, let's finish the end of the text. So at the end of the story, what is the question that Jesus asked the lawyer? It's right there in verse 36. Look at it. It's not. Lawyer, so, was the wounded man a neighbor? It's not the question. But he asked him, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, literally in the Greek, the proved, it's, it's okay, but, but it is the word to become. Je- Jesus says literally, here's the point, Which of the three guys finding this bloody guy on the side of the road, which of them became a neighbor? He hated the question, who's my neighbor? He turned it around and made the point. The question is, what kind of person are you? One who has compassion. One who obeys, love your neighbor. Are you the neighbor? And so the lawyer responds. <laughs> the one who showed him mercy. Okay. Uh, 
I don't think he could have brought himself to say, the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus does not give an answer to that explicit question, who's my neighbor? But instead he says, in effect, go and become a new kind of person. He says, go and get a changed heart that has compassion regardless of a person's religion, race, social status. And as we saw last week, that's impossible. That is impossible without the first command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that first command to love God is impossible for this lawyer. And for you. And for me. In our natural, sinful, unregenerate states. And this is why Jesus came to die. He came to die to make Samaritans like us who have hatred for the image of God represented in other people and change us into people who become compassionate. How did He do it? He came first to put away our guilt that meant God is personally against us. And He removed it. And He gave to us the very righteousness or righteous living of that one man, Jesus Christ. And says, now that's you. Jesus came to lay down His life in order to bring about, to enact, to inaugurate the new covenant. Remember, the night before His crucifixion, This is the blood of the new covenant. What are you talking about? He's talking about fulfilling the Scriptures. He's talking about the promise of the new covenant laid out in Jeremiah 31. This is how Jeremiah, centuries earlier, prophesied it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That is my covenant that they broke. Though I was a husband, declares the Lord. No, not like that. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. Well, let's summarize the law, Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. The new covenant, I won't just write it in a book and say, do it! I personally will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, you've got to know the Lord. Because they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest. Jeremiah, by the Spirit of God, foretells the core of what Christ is coming to purchase with His blood. New covenant people. And every single person who is actually in the new covenant, you don't have to say, know the Lord, but by definition, they know the Lord. Because the new covenant isn't just a pact that God will make with those who could obey His law. Who could live their life a little better. Who who can somehow bring themselves to love God. Trust in me. Have faith. And then I'll make a pact and you'll be a new covenant person. That's not what the new covenant is. The new covenant is the promise. I have a people and I will get them. And part of what I have covenanted to do is to change their hearts. They're hardened. When they can't love me. And therefore, they can't truly love their enemies. It's impossible. And then the new covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And He takes hell-bound, hard-hearted, racist, And they're changed. This is how Ezekiel talks about the same new covenant in chapter 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Softness. And I will put My Spirit within you. And I, God, will cause you to walk in My statutes and to obey. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. What a glorious message that we have. And those of us who have come to Him have been saved by. Because God has ordained it now this way. The blood has been shed and there is a message. It's called news. It's called good news. Gospel. And when a person, a sinful, hard-hearted Samaritan or Jew or Gentile, hears the message of God incarnate, the Messiah, the Savior has come into the world and become a true man and lived perfectly loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighborism. So laid down his life. And God raised him from the dead. And if you will see and believe in him, eternal life is freely granted. That message goes out. And when a, a sinner hears that, and with it something happens called God causing the person to be born again with it. Or just use the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God says, I'm fulfilling the promise. I will give you a new... He got the message. I brought the message. Got it. And I give you a new heart. And I put my spirit within you. Now that person, finitely, Mixed, tinged with remaining sin, brokenness, but now genuinely loves God in and through Jesus Christ. And it is being evidenced by imperfect, tinged with sin, Broken, yet genuine love toward other human beings. The essence of the parable that Jesus tells us this morning reminds all of us believers how desperate every day we are. Not first to go say, let me find someone to love. But every day, first, God, help me love you. Help, help me breathe you as my air to my soul to be filled with you. And then every day, to want more of that glorious, vertical experience of God our Father, of Christ our Savior, of the Holy Spirit in our presence, to want more experience of that in overflowing it, circulating it, 
outward in loving others as we love ourselves. We are desperate to pursue with our minds, that is in the Bible, God, with our affections as we saw last week, our heart, God, draw near, please, I want to draw near to you, I want you to draw near to, to me. I don't know. We all get to just find what that means for us. But those are Bible words. I, I think it's more than mere religion. I think there's something that we're desperate for. Particularly if you're going to ask in the light of, how do I be more of a loving, caring person towards others? I'm just going to close with an illustration of what I think I tried to say in the last 54 minutes. And that's the Hebrew writer. So just, just, just assume we're right on right here. And now, here's the writer to these first century Jewish Christians. And he's appealing. Come on, guys, you're not loving like you used to. Listen to how he does it in Hebrews 10. But recall, come on, remember the former days when... After you were enlightened, New Covenant people, you were born again. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction because of your faith in Jesus. And, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Partners with other human beings, particularly here, Christians, who were treated very badly. I mean, he goes on to say, for you had compassion on those in prison. And not only that, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. Probably to be identified with these other Christians who were put in prison and you go visit them, you might, that, oh, there's one, and it might cost you a lot of money and stuff, and couches and stoves and whatever else they take. That's what he says. You guys did that. He says, no, it doesn't matter. For love, horizontal sake. Let me read it again now. Watch the connection he makes. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property because... What's the because? Because you knew something. Oh, we need... Yesterday's loving the Lord with our mind and knowing something doesn't suffice for today. Because, the Hebrew writer says, remember this and be like that. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The Hebrew writer just says, to the extent you're going to be empowered to love again like you did 18 years ago, is to the extent you are loving God vertically in the knowledge of the gospel and putting your hope where it's supposed to be, and not in this world. So now, you will not hesitate anymore to go visit others in prison, 
knowing it puts a threat on your checkbook, your property, your stuff, your life. Love God is the point these last two weeks of this glorious passage and how Jesus brings it so penetratingly home to us. Love God first. Love others second. The power to love others, the reason is is found in us finding our souls and minds and heart and strength, satisfaction in Him alone is the source. And He now gives us the power, the energy, the stuff, the things, the bandages, the wine, the oil, the time, the care to love others. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we feel may we feel the glorious freedom in our bondage, the glorious freedom in the hope, no matter how horribly we loved others last week, that every day as a believer in Jesus. Your mercies and your strength and your power are new. And right there for times of refreshing to our souls. Continue to work, Father. I beg as a desperate man, work in me and work in us, even in these next few minutes, work powerfully and strongly by your Spirit. Cause our roots to go deep into our personal, intimate, Bible, prayer, life. And thus cause our fruit of loving others to be sweet.